When you are feeling like you're gonna get screwed and you don't know what to do, you should call an attorney, Esquire, sir. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> Welcome to this special episode of Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis. And I wanted to bring you this talk I had with two entertainment law experts. I was talking with my friend Sarah Howes, who's studying entertainment law, and she was interested in coming on the show and talking about copyright with you composers out there. So she brought along Blake Iverson, who works as an entertainment lawyer, and the two of them share some great tips and answer a lot of questions you might have on your mind, like how do I make money from royalties? And how do I protect myself if someone is infringing on my copyright? And how do I copyright my work in the first place? Blake also has some good advice about when you should or shouldn't enter a contract, either with a record company or with a friend. Maybe the two of you have written a song together and you need to decide how to split up the money from royalties. As a creative person, I know that legal issues aren't the most fun thing to think about, but I hope this episode gets you at least thinking a little bit about it and clears up some of the misconceptions you might have about entertainment law. But before we begin, I just have a little bit of Composer Quest news here. If you missed the last episode, I challenged you composers out there to write an aria for the group Opera on Tap Twin Cities. And these talented singers are willing to perform your music. So, submit your aria to me by July 15th, and my email is charlie at composerquest.com. So, looking forward to hearing some arias from you listeners. So now, let's get some of your legal questions answered and go to my talk with Blake and Sarah. I'm here with... Blake Iverson, an entertainment lawyer here in Minneapolis, and Sarah Howes, a friend of mine who's been studying entertainment law and works for Springboard for the Arts. So yeah, I appreciate you guys coming in to talk. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Maybe you guys could describe kind of what you do in your jobs. Uh, So I'm a partner at, at the law firm Friedman Iverson. And my practice is mainly um, working with creatives, and I define that pretty broadly. It started out as a, as a strict entertainment practice with um, a lot of musicians, writers, filmmakers, authors, and it has really expanded to include you know chefs and food trucks and graphic designers and advertising agencies. And I basically do a lot of contracts and a lot of intellectual property work, and then consulting stuff that that they need as professionals. Yeah, and uh, I'm with Springboard for the Arts, which is an economic development nonprofit for artists, and I work for the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts program. Um, I uh, help figure out how to do workshops and to educate artists on the basics of intellectual property, contract, licensing, things with that nature, and then uh, nonprofit formation, just because Springboard operates the incubator program, so we're a fiscal sponsor for got over a hundred different nonprofits, so I get a lot of questions like that. And then recently I've been getting a lot of healthcare questions, so a lot of Hmm. topics. Cool. (laughs) Maybe I'll start out with just some 
probably really basic mm-hmm. questions that I've thought about. I really don't know anything about <laughs> copyright. Um, aside from, I have filed for copyright for one of my albums, sent it to Library of Congress, and then like three years later heard back. <laughs> <laughs> but before I did that, I was I had heard, and maybe this is a myth, that you can send... It's a myth. Okay, you, well, the myth, I guess, is that you can send a copy of your work to yourself, and then you're somehow covered legally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a complete myth. It's a lot, what a lot of people refer to as the poor man's copyright. And, um, you know, basically copyright rights vest in creation. As soon as you put something in a tangible medium, you write it down, you record it on GarageBand, you, you know, anything that you would do, you have a copyright in that work. So I, I think that where the myth started is that if someone were to independently create or to copy you and apply for copyright, basically stealing your work, you would need something to prove that you did it first. Um, in the age of computers, it's less of an issue because we can show when a file was created. So it's, it's not an issue anymore. But, you know, I think that's, I think that's where the myth started. But it really, you have the same rights uh, that you, as soon as you create it as you did when you dropped it in the mail. Mm-hmm. Um, the big distinction between uh, registering a copyright and not registering a copyright is, is if someone infringes your copyright, you know, what you can sue them for. I've had clients be willfully infringed by someone else. Someone took their thing knowingly and stole it, published it themselves. It's, it's really great when that happens and when it's a corporation that does it because statutory damages are $130,000 per instance of infringement. Oh. So it's, it's pretty hefty money. Um, if you haven't registered a copyright, basically what you can sue for is an injunction. You can get them to stop doing that. And maybe you can get some of the, if they made money in the interim off that, maybe you can get some of that money. Mm-hmm. But you can't go after the big money damages. Okay. So is the best way to do it still like, now, in the era of putting out singles, mm-hmm. do people register those with the Library of Congress, like uh, you can. every single? You, well, you can register, uh, well, I mean, we should probably back up. So you have two copyrights in a piece of music. Mm-hmm. There is the compositional copyright in the, in the notes and the words, and then there's a the sound recording copyright. They're two separate copyrights. And I, I think very often, you know, people who are, are starting out doing it themselves don't necessarily realize that and will often just do a, a sound recording copyright. And, you know, I mean, that does give them some protection, but really you should register both copyrights. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I probably only did my sound recording. <laughs> very, very common. I mean, you know, it's, we're in an age where, you know, many of the musicians don't, don't read music. So, you know, notation is, you know, you couldn't sit with a piece of sheet music and write them out anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got you know people who are doing things intuitively on synthesizers and on computers that don't have the kind of foundational compositional skills that somebody you know, 30, 40 years ago and before might have had. Mm-hmm. So what do they do then if they want to register the actual composition of it? Well, that's, that's a good question. How does Skrillex get a composition that will copyright? That's you know, and then, yeah. which I don't know the answer to that. I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't dealt with it. You know, I, I deal with it more in the, you know, the kind of traditional singer-songwriter model where there's a, a lyricist and at a minimum, you can record the chords, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be in, in uh, you know, staff 
sheet music. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of software, though, correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, but a lot of software now, you actually can create the sheet music now, right? Automatically. Yeah, in some yeah. of them you can. Mm-hmm. So that we had that one time with a, a playwright who wrote a song for the play because it was about jazz. And, you know, I, I recommended to him to, like, actually submit that with it when he's submitting the play, like when he's doing like the sound, because you can, co- you, when it comes like to movies and plays, you can comp- put things together and make it one copyright. So it's under one file and one owner. And they are pretty good about that, letting you do things at once. Like, like you know, you were saying like the single sound, the mm-hmm. single song, right? It'd be really inefficient and really, inex- really expensive for an independent musician to every time they made a song, copyright it and yeah. pay $25. So like you could take like you, Charlie, how many songs did you make last year? Like, um, I don't even want to know, like, a thousand? Like, you're like, <laughs> yeah, right. You're like Tom York. You make, like, a thousand um, songs a year. <laughs> not not quite. I, I've been in a songwriting slump. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I have made a, quite a few songs yeah. over the years. So. Yeah, so you could take, like, say, December to December, and you could call that, like, one collection. And you could copyright that as a collection. Okay. Well, that's cool. And um, how do publishers factor into this then? From the artist's perspective, they're going to have different partners. They're going to have a publishing partner, a music publishing house. Uh, you know, Warner Chapel, you know, owns a million songs or Acuff Rose. But they will affiliate with either a publishing house or they'll own their own publishing. The nice thing about a publishing house is like they're going to go out and promote these things. Mm-hmm. They're going to try and get people to cover your songs, try and get your songs placed in movies and, you know, in TV shows, video games, things like that, because you're going to see a publishing royalties through that and they collect all that. And that's where the, the royalty societies come in as well. The ASCAP, mm-hmm. BMI, CSAC, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of collect the data and, and pay royalties out. And generally they'll pay your publishing company who will pay you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually a 50-50 split. Uh, the other partner that they that a musician at least had in the in the old, in the good old days was a record company, and they would collect the royalties on sound recordings. Again, you're going to ASCAP, BMI, CSAC factors into that because they're tracking radio play, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, um, and also moving units. They're going to collect the money from the actual sales of the sound recordings, and then give you some fraction of it. Definitely less than the publishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was meeting with. Noah mm-hmm. at Springboard, he was talking about how a lot of people don't know that if you don't have a recording company, like let's say you're just publishing sheet music, BMI or ASCAP will then just take the 50% for themselves that is um, record for a recording company if you don't specify one. So he was saying that you should specify one as just yourself yeah your identify yourself yeah because they'll 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 yeah if they don't have to distribute the money they won't so if there's nobody to distribute it to they'll keep it the the publishing houses kind of like everyone in the music industry are very tight with a buck mm-hmm. so yeah you should definitely identify yourself as both if you are both yeah so both a mm-hmm. publishing or as a the composer mm-hmm. and as the recordist. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's really important for local artists is to think about um, the current, right? So current plays a lot of local artists. If they're not, if someone's not registered with BMI or ASCAP, like they have no obligation to pay out because they're a nonprofit organization. And so that's something that has come up a lot in the media is that musicians they'll perform on the current, which is great, um, but unless they actually went through the formal process, they're not getting any royalties for their, their playtime. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's good to know because I'm guessing a lot of people who submit to the current the mm-hmm. local radio station here, they probably... I, I'm not actually registered. That's pretty bad as a composer, <laughs> BMI or ASCAP or CSAC. Mm-hmm. But that's one I was going to ask you too is I've heard a little bit about the differences between CSAC and BMI and ASCAP. There's actually a really funny story about BMI and ASCAP. I don't know the full story, but you can actually Google like ASCAP BMI history because apparently it was like the same group of dudes. That, like, do you know this story? Like, they I've wanted to like get together and they came up with this idea, and then they like had like a, a you know, like a falling out, like you know, behind the music kind of breakup, and then that's basically the the history of those two. So yeah, <laughs> and and you know, you'll you'll talk to artists who will tell you that one is better than the other. You know, I think it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. I, I uh, no one seems particularly happy. No artist is really excited to get a check for twenty six dollars. I mean, you know, it's better than zero, mm-hmm. but. Um, the music industry as a whole, including ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, are playing catch-up. Only recently have they started paying royalties for live performances. So artists can uh, submit their set lists and their gigs, You know, so the number of times that they played live in a venue that pays ASCAP or BMI royalties. I mean, this is, this is how it works in the, you know, in the live music world. You know, every, every venue that has live music has received a visit from an ASCAP or BMI representative telling them that they need to pay royalties and that's how the money filters back to the artists and you know ASCAP and BMI of course take a cut but you know artists can finally now say look I performed at at First Avenue and I played this song and you know that some money should come back to them you know a a pittance but but something Mm -hmm. so what about places like on the internet like Spotify is that connected with the publishing companies too and how does that because I've heard that even Lady Gaga makes like a small amount compared to what she she yeah. could make elsewhere. Yeah, well, that's actually like th- this is pretty complicated. I actually did some research on this for this podcast because it took me like there's this thing called the Internet Radio F- Fairness Act, right? That's mm-hmm. in uh, Congress. Well, you know, if they weren't sequestered, they'd be doing something about it. But um, it was really confusing to understand what exactly it is. But Pandora is you know an internet radio service, and then there's things like. Uh, satellite radio, um, and then there's just the regular radio. And what what ends up happening is essentially like every five years, there's this copyright juror. It's like a panel of three judges that get together and they determine royalty amounts, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I hope I'm getting this right. I did. <laughs> it's really confusing. Yeah. Literally, it took me like I go to law school and read boring texts all day, and it took me like four to five hours to figure out exactly what this was. So they get together and they they basically, every five years, they determine what the amounts are going to be. And last time they got together, they gave satellite radio and they said, satellite radio only has to pay 10% of their profits in royalties to the artist. But they gave Pandora 50%. They said Pandora has to do 50%. So the Internet Radio Fairness Act has nothing to do with artists. It's Hmm. Pandora trying to get into the 10% range that the satellite artists have so if you guys have heard anything about this i encourage you to educate yourself i don't want to like be too much of an advocate but it is very confusing and then spotify is actually different spotify actually doesn't have to be regulated for some reason by the government they just do it their own way and so there's a lot of like pandora versus spotify yeah. questions well, because you, you know spotify you control which songs you want to hear mm-hmm. pandora you just control artists or genre mm-hmm. or something like that 
So there's a question with Pandora of, you know, you do have some control, Mm -hmm. but you can't, you know, say, I want to hear this song right now. Hmm. So there's a distinction, and and the way they factor it, you know, Spotify pays royalties based on the number of spins, um, you know, the number of people listening to a, a particular song in a you know a month or a week or whatever, and it's you know it's a fraction of a of a cent you know per spin. So the royalty rates, I mean, you know, artists are seeing less money than they were seeing when they were based on terrestrial radio. What are your thoughts on Creative Commons copyright? I think it's great in a sense that people are putting themselves out there and letting the people use their content sort of in this like, you know, bartering system way of thinking. But, you know, I'd be hesitant, at, you know, once I'm an attorney and even now as a law student to actually like recommend it to somebody because essentially it'd be like telling somebody, oh, you have a house, you should put a sign outside that says anyone here can use this whenever they want, like, and just, like, giving out a full license. Because theoretically, you never know who's going to get your hands on what you made and how good it's going to be and what it monetarily is going to cost. So I guess it's kind of a hard... I don't know if you feel comfortable, but I, I would feel uncomfortable recommending somebody put something on Creative Commons. Well, I think it's, it's spec work. You know, I mean, the idea is that it's a way to potentially break through and have someone notice your stuff so that you can enter a a capitalist, you know, so you can monetize your future work. Uh, I mean, that's really what it is, is a calling card. And, you know, and I think that (laughs) we've gotten some fights on Twitter with people when our law firm has promoted contests where people would submit things. Mm. You know, some people feel really strongly about spec work. And I want artists to get paid. That's my whole job is helping artists get paid. But, you know, I can't blame someone for hustling and thinking, well, you know, I have the talent and what I need to do is get recognized. And, you know, so, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with Sarah. I'm not comfortable in saying, you know, what you ought to do with this is just give it away. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, you know, but I think that that's, you know, I, I think it is a strategy. Yeah. Um, maybe not the best one, but, you know, for some people it's, you know, it's a way to get their foot in the door. It's, you know, historically there are examples of that. I always uh, think of the singer-songwriter Mary Lou Lord, who used to just play in the subways in Boston, and she eventually got a record contract out of it. So, you know, things like that happen. Sure. And there have been plenty of street performers who've risen up. I mean, that's that's the idea, is that you're giving away your art so someone recognizes the value in it and say, well, says, you shouldn't give this away anymore. Sure. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, which I'm sure you agree with, you know, I've heard of friends who are in LA and they got a film finally made and somebody wanted to pick it up and distribute it and then it got leaked on the internet and then it's worth nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean I, I've been to a, conferences and they talk about windows and I think that's the best way to talk about how to share your content in a marketing strategy but not giving it away. So if you made a film, maybe you release a trailer or a clip and you put it out there and you say, hey, check this out, watch it, it makes you laugh, you want to watch the whole thing. But dear God, do not put your full film out on the internet because you'll never get it back. Like once it's out there, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Like, the window is open. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would also put in a plug for people to, to make sure that when you take meetings with people, have non-disclosure agreements and don't leave copies behind. I mean, that's how stuff gets leaked. Every studio, every record company is filled with 20-year-old interns who love the free stuff that they get to take advanced peeks at. Mm-hmm. And that's how the stuff winds up disseminated so widely. So, you know, make sure that you, you know, have some power when you take a meeting with somebody and you want to show them something, have, have them have a non-compete, non-disclosure agreement so they don't steal the idea or leak it and take away the value. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
So how, where do you find one of these non-disclosure? You go see your neighborhood attorney. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can find legal documents on the internet. The same way you would find, you know, you might find the new Kanye West record on the internet too. Does that mean that that you should take it? I mean, you know, it's uh, the law is is a lot like you know art in that the internet has tried to suck some of the money out of it. You know, this information wants to be free idea, and can a savvy person take something they find on the internet and modify it in a way that it's got real value? Absolutely, but I I, I really caution people against relying too heavily on things they found on the internet. You know, and I deal with a lot of artists that frankly, just don't have any money to put in, in, into something mm-hmm. like this. You know, and I was that artist, so I know how that is. But I will tell you that I make a lot more money cleaning up people's messes than I do off people where I just do the right thing at the outset. <laughs> more people come into me and say, I signed this terrible contract, what can I do? You oh. know, um, Or I, sh- I had them sign this and, and they stole my idea anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's not enforceable, it's, it's really poorly drafted. Another thing that people do is they'll decide that the, that the way to do it is to find two contracts on the internet and just cut and paste things out of them and make one Frankenstein contract, <laughs> which is the most dangerous thing. I, and I see it all the time. I see it from companies. I see mm-hmm. it from people who actually do have attorneys who I think do them a disservice by you know creating these contracts that have inconsistent terms in them. Mm-hmm. And then who knows which one is the one you follow? I mean, is it the one that appears first in the text? Is it the one that appears last in the text? It's closer to your signature? I mean, it's, you know, these are the kinds of questions that attorneys, you know, deal with all the time. Hmm. Well, speaking of contracts and agreements, we have one that's kind of pertinent to our Composer Quest audience because I've challenged these composers and songwriters to collaborate. I randomly paired them up. Mm -hmm. And so some people live, most people live in different states and different countries, and um, they're doing this recording kind of back and forth, collaborative thing. But let's say you are doing a collaboration with someone, and sometime in the future, someone asks you to use it in a movie or something like that. What's a good way to write up a contract that is fair to both parties? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's very specific to the instance. You know, when we look back at, at the great partnerships, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, or you know, people like that, who someone was the librettist and someone was the composer. Yeah. You know, they probably had had an agreement that, you know, and I guess I don't know, but I assume that they decided, oh, my contribution was equal to yours. And we'll make this a 50-50 agreement. We're co-owners of it. I see it in, <laughs> I see it in rock bands a lot, particularly when someone wants to leave a band. Um, things get kind of ugly. Well, you know, the bass player, what did they contribute? Did they write the song? Well, they maybe wrote their own bass part, so mm-hmm. they contributed the song. Without their part, it wasn't the song, but they didn't necessarily write the melody. They didn't necessarily write the lyrics. So, again, this is something that I think is better figured out at the front end mm-hmm. or as soon as the piece is finished, and and we might say 70% of this is yours and 30% is mine, you know, mm-hmm. if it doesn't feel like a 50-50. And better to enter into an, a contract and just draw that up. It doesn't. There are no magic words. You know, but just to say, you know, you and I agree on such and such date that that this is the work of us working together and that, you know, your contribution was 70 percent, mine was 30 percent and any money that we make off it will be split that way. Sure. I mean, it's as simple as that. And you both sign it and date it. And just so you know, I mean, this if, if it's people in different countries can email. Let's let's ask the law student. 
can <gasps> can emails <laughs> first year. can a series of emails constitute a contract? Yes. All right. What does a contract have to have? <laughs> a, con- uh, a contract has to have well, it, I mean, you have to have an offer and mm-hmm. an acceptance and consideration, which yep. means that there is basically benefit on both sides. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in writing. It depends on whether or not it falls within the statute of frauds. Well, that's a <laughs> now we're getting. I don't even know what that means. Um, <laughs> but I got but, nervous. I was like, no, that's, hey, that's good. But that's I, I taught contracts oh. last semester at, at McNally Smith College of Music, and that was you know every day I'd have you know mm-hmm. grill it into the students that that's what a contract had to have. It's distinct from a promise. But yeah, it doesn't have to be in writing. It can be oral. Okay. Um, the question is, how do you prove what somebody said orally, yeah. you know, down the road when the, the stories have changed? You know, once there's a lot of money at stake, funny people's recollections get a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's also like, you know, there's something called parole evidence, right? So like if you have an agreement, right, and you put it together and you say, oh, you know, this is our entire agreement and this is whatever. And then like late years later, like the bass player is like, no, remember we were talking about how I really was going to get this. Right, like the nice thing is that the court might be like, you know, we're not going to include that. It's yeah. just the agreement. Itself. We're going to look at the mm-hmm. and, and most most contracts will end with a you know something akin to this contract is the sum of the agreement. Nothing else, you know, and no other side arrangements are incorporated into this. Sure, you know, basically, so so the bass player player can't come back and say, oh yeah, remember that time that mm-hmm. we. You know, we were all drunk and we said that, yeah. uh, <laughs> that you know, really, without me, you guys would be nowhere. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Blake said something one time that, you know, if somebody hands you, if you're in a position, like, you just had a great situation, your album just got some award, and now people want to buy it on iTunes and Amazon, and some record company comes with you with some 75-page agreement, dear God, call an attorney. Like... I mean, because there's no way that that document isn't somehow taking advantage of this like yeah. first time artist. Well, there, you know, if some, I mean, this is, I'll clean it up for podcast. But one of the things that I that I would um, that question I ask my class every day at the beginning of class: if someone hands you a contract, what is the first question you ask yourself? And that question is: how am I being screwed? Because nobody is writing a contract that benefits you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're writing it to benefit themselves. And, you know, in it, there might be mutual benefit in it. Not every contract is evil. But as attorneys, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our clients to, to do right by them mm-hmm. and to glean any advantage that we can. You know, we know in a negotiation there's going to be some give and take. So we want to start. I mean, this is why negotiations always start with, I'll pay you a dollar. And the other side says, I want a million dollars. You know, and they want They know... The, the the starting points kind of dictate where the end point is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything would like make a person on the other line sweat more than if you were like, huh, and you just stayed quiet and then you said, well, you know what? How about you send it over to me and I'll have my attorney look it over. And I think that that would just be the end. You would not have to feel like you're going to get taken advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's well worth it. And in things like recording contracts, you know, one thing that I would negotiate for is I can negotiate for my fees to be covered out of the contract. For my, you know, my client, you know, might be a band to have a budget of $10,000 to pay their attorney, you know, out of this, a legal budget that they get paid in addition to their advance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I can negotiate for that, then I'm not taking money out of my client's pocket. 
I'm taking money out of the other side's pocket, mm-hmm. and my clients are getting good representation. Mm-hmm. So that's always an option. So I, you know, I think it's there are people who come to see me who have no money, who are hopeless, and you know, some of whom I help out anyway, and some of whom I say, "I'm sorry, I can't. There's nothing I can do for you." But you know, I, I think going to see an attorney and always asking, "Is there something you can do? Is there a way to make this happen?" Attorneys, you know, if nothing else, they're problem solvers. So. Maybe they can come up with a creative solution to help you, even if you don't have the resources to pay, you know, what sounds like a, a you know an exorbitant hourly rate or even a flat fee. So sometimes that sure. works. Sure. So in your contracts class, or I guess whenever you've taught music students, what are some of the common questions you get? <laughs> uh, do I really have to read this? <laughs> That's. Uh, my, one of my predecessors uh, teaching contracts at McNally, he taught the entire class out of a hundred page record contract. And Ooh. he would just read it day after day after day. And I heard horror stories about it, but not to, not to besmirch him, but uh, <laughs> you know, contracts are really intimidating to people and you really have to think about what you're entering into. And people don't want to, people just say, all right, this says you're going to pay me a hundred grand. So I'll sign it. And it might say, like on page 39 of 100, it might say, we get your firstborn child, we get, you know, whatever. (laughs) And, and, you know, I mean, it's buried in 10-point type and, you know, single-spaced. And it's it's really intimidating. Have you seen the South Park episode with... I think Kyle forgets to read the iTunes terms and conditions, (laughs) like anyone does that, I guess, but... Part of it involves Apple turning him into a human centipede. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, when I, um, my first day of class, I went around the room and I said, who's signed a contract? And, and you know, these are all music students. So they're thinking about recording contracts. That's what they think a contract is. And we weave around the room and no one says they've signed a contract. And we get to the last row in the class and one kid says, well, oh, I got a lease. And I was like, who else has a lease? And all the hands shoot up. Well, you signed that. And that's a contract. And, you know, a credit card application is a contract. And the iTunes terms of service are a contract. Who uses iTunes? All hands go up. And, well, you signed a contract there. You know, you deal with contracts every day. And I think that, that people don't think about that because they do. We live in a world where you click through and you don't read things. I, I have one attorney friend who loves to tell people that he's read the iTunes, iTunes terms of service. I read most of them once because I owned a company that was an internet trivia company that was going to use iTunes content. And, you know, iTunes said no on about page 37 of 59. You know, that they prohibited the kind of specific kind of use we were looking for. Hmm. So good thing I read it. What about like wedding DJs who... Or DJs in general who are making money from using iTunes. Oh, yeah. No, you can't do that. Really? No. No, you don't get a public performance right with iTunes. <laughs> I mean, this yeah does does Apple know what's going on? Sure. I, I mean, everyone's trying to make a buck off this stuff. I don't know if you've been following the the podcast shakedowns. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. <laughs> um, so that's a scary thing, right? Yeah. You know, so what that, what is the story there? Well, so this company says that in the '90s they acquired the patent to the podcast because they were putting magazines on tape. So they basically say that any, you know, magazine form, you know, talking for a period of time and and recording it and electronically disseminating it, making it available for download, they own the the patent on that. 
Um, there was a This American Life on it just a couple weeks ago that was really interesting. And they're shaking all these people down, and they won't publicly state how much they're asking for. So who knows if they're asking for $10 or 10000 or hmm. you know, $10 million. But uh, yeah. So if they approach me, what should I do? I don't know if you can see this in the microphone. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, I, I, the problem is, and this is what what is brought up in the podcast, is that uh, they talked to Mark Marin, who hosts a very popular mm-hmm. the WTF podcast, really talks to comedians, very popular. And he says, look, they know I can't afford a fight. You know, I can't afford to, to take this to the Supreme Court. And that was maybe what is necessary to invalidate their patent. You know, it takes somebody to stand up to that bully and say that they're a troll. Hmm. You know? And so they'll probably keep targeting people who just barely right. can't do it. Right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, so I think you kind of knock on wood and hope for the best and, you know, tell them you don't have any money and, you know, and, yeah. and see what they do then. How about using works in the public domain? Because I actually just had this situation today where I was going to be monetizing one of my YouTube videos, and I used a public domain film from the 1940s. And are, you, are you sure it's a public domain film from the 40s? Well, because really it, things from 1923 are about the latest that that things are in the public mm-hmm. domain. So I don't. <laughs> Interesting, because yeah. it's a it's a Russian documentary on a scientific experiment, which. On, according to archive.org, it is in the public domain. Well, it's also foreign, so it might not be subject. And it's possible in, that nobody ever, or, you know, ever registered the American rights to it. Okay. Um, so you know, so things can can enter the public domain. I, I was just in a, a seminar recently where someone was talking about, you know, when the movie Night of the Living Dead came out in 1969 or eight, whichever it was, they screwed up the registration, and so it entered the public domain. And that's why it was it became a hit as a midnight movie because TV shows could play it and not pay any royalties, or TV uh-huh. stations could pay it. You know, they could they could show it as the you know the late late show, mm-hmm. and that's where it found an audience. And there's something about that with It's a Wonderful Life, as well. Oh, um, huh. I you know I don't know that whole story, but you know basically what copyright rights are now is that things from 1923 on are protected. It's a Mickey Mouse law, literally. You know, the, like Disney has a powerful lobby that wants to keep the copyright rights to Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. That, so he hasn't entered the public domain. So every time Mickey Mouse is about to enter the public domain, funny, the law changes. Mm-hmm. In 2019, things will start to enter the public domain from 1923 sequentially, unless mm-hmm. the law changes again. For works created after 1978, it is Life of the Composer plus 70. Or hmm. 95 years if it's not a, a person who's, who is the owner of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a you know corporation or something. One thing I've thought about with YouTube, I mean, well, I know a few people who make their living off of YouTube and their partners. Mm-hmm. And what happens then, like, 100 years from now, 200 years, if YouTube is still around, will their kids be able to inherit no, that, well, the, the stuff will, it, it will still expire. I mean, let's say the copyright law doesn't change. And it's, you know, it's life plus 70. So let's say you live another 75 years. So you live that... Be sweet. Well, you know, <laughs> I hope you do. Uh, but you live another 75 years, and then your copyright rights 
that would, you know, that could pass by will. You could, you know, you can sell them at any point or, you know, you can give them to your kids. You can do whatever you want or grandkids. And they would have it for another 70 years before it entered the public domain. The, the term could change again. I mean, you know, again, Disney's still got a pretty powerful lobby. So I wouldn't rule anything out. But, um, you know, I think there's kind of a general feeling that the system needs to be overhauled. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, I know you did some research for the podcast, too. And is there anything I haven't asked here that you um, think would be good for people to know? There's, and you know, I was talking about the Internet Radio Freedom Act, but there's another act in Congress that's really important to you, Charlie, and composers. It's called the Music Act. And it actually is giving independent producers of music uh, sort of the government is going to support them and being able to compete with the larger music companies. And so they actually get to go to these like trade shows, international trade shows, and the government will pay for someone like Charlie mm. to go to an international trade show and like sell your music, like your your bands, your artists. Uh-huh. And so like that is huge. And I think that's great. And so like thinking about ways that you can get involved with the more independent um, scene and the local musicians and the artists and not just like hearing a bunch of myths like mm-hmm. and going with it so you can feel better at night. <laughs> yeah. Well, how would someone go about getting into trade shows? Is there a site so the you can has, go to or Well, like any act that's ever written and Blake probably knows more about this than I do. Like they don't really know how they're going to administer it yet. So they just sure. like write a bunch of stuff and then someone has to figure it out. That's what branches of government are for. And um so, but what I think what people could do is there's a lot of, I think I sent you something, Charlie, but there's actually things like Independent Music Producers Association or something like that. I, I don't think that's like the full title, but it could be something similar to that. And just getting involved as an advocate and just kind of sponsoring it or writing your representatives and saying like, hey, I think this music act, or you should read it yourself. I'm not telling you what to do, but um, read it and think about it. And if you want to support it, then you should. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and one thing I would advocate is, you know, getting involved with organizations. Individuals don't have a lot of power, but but there is power in finding like-minded people, you know, get involved with advocacy groups and find ways to effectively advocate for the changes. Um, one thing that, that they have in New York City that we've talked about, you know, that would be great here is a freelancer's lobby, uh, you know, a freelancer's union. And the musicians' union, like who who joins the musicians' union? People in the orchestra, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. you know nobody else does mm-hmm. because it's expensive, and it, maybe there's a way to to make a cost-effective thing that you know would give you, you know your collective voices, you know, some amplification. Mm-hmm. Do either of you have suggestions of how artists can make a living from recordings? And it's it's all in licensing. I mean, it's it's all in licensing to to TV, advertising, you know, movies, video games, and the money's not great there. The money is okay there, um, but I, you know, I think what we've really returned to is a patronage system. You know, Kickstarter is a twenty first century patronage system. There's it's merit based. You know, really at a and you you go to the to the people hat in hand on you know on a site like Kickstarter. And say, here's a little bit of my music, and you kick in, then you'll get something. Obviously, the people who've really been, you know, tried to be revolutionary about it, Radiohead, you know, is a great example, um, within Rainbows, the pay what you want. Well, they made a ton of money off that, and they mm-hmm. didn't have to split it with anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the fraction that they would have made off a label deal to sell that many records would have been a, a lot smaller sum. But not everybody's Radiohead. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a track record. They had, they had played within the system for a long time, so they were able to, to do that. 
Yeah, I forgot they were the first ones to do that because now I've you take it for granted. Like Bandcamp.com is one that I use a lot, and they let you just pay whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But I, I forgot that started. Yeah, that, I mean that's really was really the innovation there, and I don't know that they were the first people to do it. And I think you need to be careful. You know the the Amanda Palmer story on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. where you know she raised. I don't know, over a million dollars to make her new record. And somebody did the math on it and what what she said her costs were, it would have cost it was something like a hundred dollars to print each seven inch single that people would get as their perks for it. You know, and Amanda Palmer, somebody who had had success in the music industry, probably didn't need to use that platform to make money. You know, the same thing happened when recently with Zach Braff mm-hmm. um, making trying to raise money to make a movie. You know, somebody who has access to other means. And there's some backlash with that. So, mm-hmm. you know, so artists need to be careful, you know, how they do it, you know, and, and be cognizant of how it's going to be received by their audience. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really funny now. I mean, you know, when you asked earlier about questions my class would ask. And I, I think the big thing is, when should I sign a record deal? And I think in the past, the answer has been when one is offered to you. But if you have done the things that you need, you know, jump through the hoops that you need to get to do to be offered a record deal now, which is to have your music online, have a million YouTube views or Facebook friends or fans, and you've done the legwork yourself, I think you need to ask yourself at that point, what do you need a label for? Mm-hmm. You know, you're your own PR machine. And so they're basically saying, yeah, we'll take that work and then we'll give you a fraction of the profits we make off of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it, yeah. you need them anymore. And also like an idea that I, I mean, this is not like, well-developed, but, you know, I'm a theater person, right? I own a theater company, and I think it would be so great if local musicians would have some type of easy licensing system where I could go somewhere and be able to actually just say, hey, I really want this song on my play, because ASCAP could care less about my play. I mean, because they only care about places that are like 100,000 people are going to be at, right? No, they don't actually, though. Really? Oh yeah. Oh. They shake down bars that have jukeboxes. Oh. I wow. mean, they shake down. They have they have reps in every city that mm-hmm. go to every place that has music, and say you need to be paying us. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, the the thing is, I mean, if you were, you know, like let's say your play was, you know, even off Broadway, but was but it had an ongoing engagement, sure. mm-hmm. you know, where it wasn't like one night only kind of deal, sure. then they probably would. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I didn't use anything because of that. Like, I actually didn't have pre-show music because I just didn't have time to like license anything, and I didn't want to be unethical. Um, but man, if like I could just like send someone like Charlie or somebody who had like a bunch of artists that I could license to use their song, and I wrote them a check for a hundred bucks, I would have done it. And I think that there's lots of people that would have done something like and that. And there are a lot of people on the internet who are doing that. Royalty-free yeah. music. You know, if you just search royalty-free music. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit different than Creative Commons because they are getting something out yeah, of it. You know, great. they're saying one-time license for fifteen mm-hmm. bucks and a you know an sure. unlimited license for fifty bucks. Sure. So you know, there are people who've recognized that they're able to make money off that. And, and really, the kind of songwriters that would have been your kind of Tin Pan Alley, you know, mm-hmm. songwriters for hire, who are writing things that they know, like oh, this will be great for Mother's Day videos. You know, you know, they're really, you know, they're, they're writing. You know, it's not like I'm writing from the heart and pouring this out. It's like this is my job and this is how I make a living at it mm-hmm. is writing, you know, schmaltzy things and and things that are, you know, triumphant and whatever. Just, you know, so people can put them on their YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Pond5 is a site that I've yeah. used a couple times. And it's cool because you can you upload your music and then 
people can search by how much it costs to license, what styles, mm-hmm. everything. So yeah, that might be a good one to yeah, that's awesome. put your music Man, on. Man, I should have had you guys around me like two weeks ago <laughs> when I'm sitting there trying to do this. <laughs> yeah. Figure out free show music. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I bet there's a lot of sites yeah. out there. Yeah, I like that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think some some artists have their own sites and do it, and some are, are you know part of a, a network or you know a clearinghouse kind of site. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's uh, about all the questions I have for you guys. But anything you guys would like to plug? Now's the time. Oh well, I will plug. Uh, you know, if you are an artist and you are just you don't even know who to call or who's an arts attorney, uh, feel free to call us at Springboard for the Arts. Um, you can check us out at springboardforthearts.org, and uh, you can click on the attorney referral request, and then you can fill out a form. And that's more for Minnesota listeners. Yes, right? for Minnesota Only listeners. For... But um, it's there's a network of volunteer lawyers for the arts, and almost every state has one. So you can actually uh, just Google volunteer lawyers for the arts and find one in your state. Cool. And uh, for for local listeners, I'll just uh, plug our the opening of our art gallery in our law office. August 2nd at 7 p.m. Uh, Friedman Iverson is above the Red Stag Restaurant, Northeast Minneapolis, 509 Northeast 1st Avenue. And we have a couple of musicians, Alex Wright and the Poor Nobodies playing. It should be a really good party. So cool. my question was, do we get to do your theme song or what? Yeah. Well, you you musician? Yeah. Awesome. What's the theme song? Well, we need a theme song for the episode. Oh, really? Oh, well, <laughs> he's the music. I, I, I'm, I'm a writer, so I'm, I'm lost. You guys. Hey, that's perfect. <laughs> you can help, right? Do you, what okay. do you play? Piano? Uh, guitar? guitar? Guitar. Sweet. Oh, sweet. Well, we've got to do this quick because I have to go get a client. I have to meet a client at nine. But, okay. But let's, oh, Sarah, you come great. up with some words and you sing them. Okay. Um, when you are feeling like you're going to get screwed. And you don't know what to do, you should call an attorney, Esquire, sir. (laughs) That's all I got. (laughs) Nice. That was great. Thank you guys so much for coming in. Thanks for joining me on this special episode of Composer Quest with Sarah House and Blake Iverson. I have links to some of the things Sarah talked about in this episode at composerquest.com law and also there you'll find a link to the volunteer lawyers for the arts program which i think is pretty cool i just got accepted and so i think probably you could too so thanks again so much to sarah and blake for joining me on this episode sarah in addition to being a law student also is a playwright and screenwriter so you can check out her theater company on Facebook. It's called Cardboard Productions. And Blake works at Friedman Iverson Law Firm, and I'm sure he'd be happy to answer any other legal questions you have. Just go to FriedmanIverson.com and get in touch with him. Some of you have been wondering, when is Charlie going to start up Season 2 of Composer Quest? Well, I picked a date. Wednesday, August 28th will be the premiere of Season 2. So hope you can join me. In the meantime, though, I'm going to be putting up some special episodes, so make sure to follow Composer Quest on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe in iTunes. And if you're really feeling nice, you could write a little review in iTunes. 
That would really help boost the popularity of this podcast. And since we were talking about Creative Commons in this episode, I thought I would use a piece of music that I could use under the Creative Commons license. This is from Erokia, E-R-O-K-I-A, and I found it at freesound.org. And the track is Velatrisk. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Ambient Loading Screen Music 3. So, hope you've enjoyed this nice music loop. And I will see you next time. <laughs>